0: Ephesians chapter 1, we're looking tonight as we continue our study in this book, we're, some of you will be happy to know we're moving on to the second chapter, we're in verses 1 through 5 this evening. Again, in the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul is reminding you of what God has done in Christ for his people, and all that he's been, he has given you the promise to you in christ it's in chapter 4 5 and 6 that he tells you now this is what you do with it this is how then you live in light of it and we won't we won't even begin in chapters 4 5 and 6 to understand how do we live in community in the church how do we live in community in families how do we live as husbands and wives all the things paul talks about children and parents we won't we won't know how to do any of that, and we want not the resources to do it with a willing and happy heart. You'll gut it out, and you'll crank it out, and you'll try, and you won't do it very well, and you do it in your own strength, and no one's going to be happy with that. We won't do it very well at all unless we know what we have in the grace of the gospel, which is found in the first three chapters. And that's where we look tonight in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, because... Joy in the gospel. The, the thankfulness and gratitude that the gospel produces is produced as we understand how badly we need it. And that's what you'll see tonight in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. How badly you need it and what an amazing thing it is that God has done. Let me invite you to consider that tonight then from God's word. were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would teach us your word, that you would exalt Jesus among us. You would draw our hearts to you, that you would give life where there is death. You would give wholeness where there is spiritual sickness. For we need you. So we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians have got to remember their past if they're going to be grateful in the present. And you may not even realize, dear Christian friend, that this was your past or the extent of it. But Paul wants you to hear it. He wants you to know it. He wants you to remember who you were and remember what God did And know why God did it. And I want you to think about those three things with me tonight. He says in the first place in verses 1 to 3, Christians, you need to know what you used to be. Notice his language here. And you were dead. Now that's not the case now. He's talking to Christians. He says, it takes all the way to verse 5 for you to get to his main verb. Some of you have a translation, in fact, that took... The main verb in verse 5. He made you alive. And brought it all the way forward to verse 1. So that it would make sense to you what he was getting at. But he waited on it while he described how bad things were. Not because he wants it to drag you through the mud. And have you remember the filth of your sin. Not because he wants to drive you into depression. At how bad it was. But because he knows that to remember is to be provoked to gratitude for what God has done. And so what was it like to be a non-Christian, we might ask? What was it like for you to be unconverted? We said to ourselves, I was doing pretty well. We might say to ourselves, I think I was doing pretty well at the time. Paul says, no, you were, you were needy beyond imagination. He says, you were dead, you were disobedient, and you were in danger, doomed in danger. Look at those three things. He says in the first place, you were, you were dead. And by this, he means spiritually dead. Obviously, you were walking around and alive. But you were, he says, dead. Now, listen to me. If you're a Christian, this is your past before God made you alive. But if you're not a Christian here tonight, we're, we're delighted that you're here. We're glad that you're here and you're welcome here, you need to understand the Apostle Paul is saying this is actually who you are right now. Spiritually dead. And we hear the words, it's not difficult to understand the words, but they are a hard pill to swallow. He, he says you were a corpse, is what he says. Spiritually speaking, what is, what is that like? What is he getting at? Well, what is a corpse like, we might ask? What is it like to be dead? A dead person doesn't hear the conversation going on around them in the funeral parlor. A dead person has no appetite for food or drink. And that's just the way it was with you, he says. Spiritually speaking, you didn't hunger for God. You didn't thirst for God. You didn't even realize you needed God. You were blind to the glory of Jesus. You were deaf to the work of the Holy Spirit you had no love for god you didn't move towards god you were unresponsive he says and we have to admit that about ourselves full and fully appreciate it or we won't understand what a great thing it is that god did let me ask you this question as you think about mankind are 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 people basically well sick or something worse a lot of people think people are basically well we're basically okay but i like to illustrate it this way i like to think Of us in terms of water skiers, a sport I grew up doing. Imagine yourself water skiing on a cesspool. To turn this spiritual on a cesspool of sin. Okay, you're water skiing, so to speak. Some people think, you know, we're just fine, really. As long as I do well behind the boat, staying above the water, I might get splashed a little bit here and there, but, you know, the the wind will dry it off, the sun will bake it off. I, I might be tainted a little bit on the outside, but there's really nothing wrong on the inside. I just need to do what I need to do and do it well, and I'll be well. Some people would say, no, 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 actually, you know, it's worse than that. We have taken a nasty tumble off, head over heels over the tip of the skis, and we, we are swimming in the cesspool. We're choking on the water in this. We may even be drowning in it, but we are alive enough to, to raise our hand and call for help. We're sick, but we're not what Paul says Paul says we're actually this we're dead at the bottom of that cesspool and our lungs are filled with this nasty filth we're incapable of breath we're incapable of life we have no heartbeat we have no brain waves why because we're dead in our trespasses and sins what does he mean there by trespasses and sins either he well trespasses means either crossing a boundary you shouldn't cross or or deviating from the right path we might say that the skier has gone outside the wake let go of the rope that was pulling him in the right direction and now has crossed into traffic even while he's dead at the bottom of the ocean i don't the, the, the metaphors and pictures are getting mixed up here but we've gone where we shouldn't go he says that's what a trespass is and we also have sinned and sin is to switch pictures here now let's go to basketball for a second. Sin is throwing an airball. Sin is at the free throw line. You miss completely. You fall short of your target. It's actually an archery term for for a hunter shooting an arrow or or an archist, an archery person. It's not in the notes. I make up words. Paul actually makes up three in this text, but that's for next week. Literally makes up three words. All right. So so here you. In your trespasses and in your sins, he says you are dead. And I, that is just a hard pill for people to swallow. I mean, we agree that a robber or a murderer or a gangster or whatever, I mean, these people are sinners, and okay, I can understand describing them this way, but respectable citizens, upstanding people like us, let me just ask you a few questions. How do you answer this? Are there any men in this room are, who are as good a husband, as they ought to be? Are there any wives in this room who are as good a wife as they ought to be? Are there any kids in this room who are as good a child as they ought to be? Or any parents who are as good a parent as they ought to be? You know yourself, don't you, dear friends? You fall short of even your own standard an expectation and paul is saying you have fallen short spiritually of the glory of god which was your purpose to know god and walk with god and you've not arrived you are actually he says dead and disobedient you he says No, look at verse two he says he doesn't use the word disobedient but he says you know you follow the course of the world you live like the world does business as usual oblivious to christ's kingdom Not having a mind of your own, you sort of drifted along in the stream, doing what everybody else does, thinking what everybody else thinks. And more than that, not only did you follow in the way of the world, but you followed, he says, after the prince of the power of the air. You actually, he says, you followed along with Satan's designs and schemes. That's the prince of the power of the air. Paul here believes in a real personal devil who runs a kingdom and though the devil cannot be in every place at once he doesn't see the devil under every rock the devil is a creature who in his creatureliness can only be himself in one place at one time he is the prince of the powers of the air the spirits now at work in the sons of disobedience he probably means something like the devil here is the head of a legion of anti-Christ spirits. Anti-God spirits. And you went along with them. You go along with them in their rebellion and you don't even know that you do. In fact (laughs) though he doesn't tell us how they influence us, he says they do influence us and how do they do that? The fact is most anybody following them doesn't know that they are. You're saying right. Yeah, I've never once in my head said i'm gonna follow him the bible says though that the devil masquerades as an angel of light like the witches in the chronicles of narnia if you're familiar with the, the c.s lewis children's tale *Lion, the witch in the wardrobe and others you'll notice that the witches are always knock down drag out beautiful captivating absolutely stunning and they dazzle with their beauty and they capture the heart with their winsome words and Turkish delight and the, the promise of pleasure and the, the hope of glory but they never follow through very well but you understand the way Lewis presents them is they, they masquerade as something really good all the while in their cunning and deceit they're aiming at something entirely wrong. And they'll just use a, a brute exercise of power and strength unless it becomes necessary in those stories. Well, that, that's what he, the Bible says Satan is like. He, he fools you into thinking what's good is bad and what's bad is good, and all the while you think whatever it is is good. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense as a strategy, ungodly as it is, if a wolf wants to devour a sheep, Maybe the best strategy is for the wolf to wear sheep's clothing and sneak in among the sheep. Is it too hard for you, though, to believe in a prince of the power of the air that hides his existence and influence? It may be too hard for some of you. You find it difficult to believe. All that comes to your mind is, well, let me put it the way C.S. Lewis does in his nonfiction work, Screwtape Letters, he says, Screwtape Letters is a book in which he's, he's written from the perspective of an older demon to a younger demon about how to, uh, how to injure the patient, you know, the Christian. So the older demon speaks to the younger demon and says this, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, the patient's mind, Suggest to him the picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. See, see if you think the devil is wearing some long red underwear and has a tail and holds a pitchfork, which is absurd, you might think, well, then he doesn't really exist at all because he couldn't be that. But the point is here, as Paul would say, we actually, though we didn't even know it perhaps, we were following in the pattern of the world and we were actually following the prince of the power of the air. And all the while perhaps we thought we were basically doing good and doing right. And then he says, and so we indulged the flesh. Notice that's the next thing he says. So in light of that, what did we do? Well, we carried out, we lived in the passions of our flesh. Verse 3 carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We indulged ourselves, he says. And that can go a variety of ways. Whether your hunger has become gluttony and your sexual desire has become lust or and your sleep has become sloth or the opposite. You eat healthy and you moderate your sexual drive and you discipline your sleep, but you do so to attract others. You do so to top others to boast in self either way he says we have we have unnatural passions and desires we even take the very natural desires that God has given to us and we pervert them into sinful desires but it's not just the body friends it's the mind he says it's it's the intellectual pride and the false ambition and and vengeful thoughts and and envy in the mind self-confidence Self reliance, self-righteousness, these are all ways in which we behaved like a sinner. And why do we do that? Because we are a sinner. We sin because we're sinners. It's helpful to recognize, friends, we don't we aren't sinners because we sin. We actually sin because we're sinners. It's not that I went out and told a lie and therefore have become a liar. I lie because I'm a liar. I kill because I'm a murderer. I I, I lust because I'm a luster. That's what I am, and so therefore I do, the Bible says. That's what we were, Paul says. This is the way we lived in the passions of this. Just following after it. Paul says, look, at all these ways, we don't think the right things, we don't want the right things, we don't do the right things, because we don't like what God likes, love what God loves. Believe what God believes, want what God wants, and do what God tells us to do in all these ways. In all these ways. And just when you we think, well, that's, I mean, that's a pretty sad description of mankind. That's a pretty sad description of my history. Paul says it was worse than that. There's something so overwhelming that, that these other descriptions pale in comparison. What is it he says? Well, what was God's estimation of us? Dead, disobedient, and... End of verse 3. We were, he says, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were, we were doomed and in danger under the wrath of God. And you say to me, Ted, it's the 21st century. Are you really going to preach from a pulpit about wrath? Paul is preaching about wrath here. And wrath, my friends, I want to say to you is not a dirty word though it's a scary truth god's wrath and god's love actually go together and they actually go together in this text in which he says you were under the wrath of god but god with the love with which he loved you rescued you and so these two things go together in god how do they do that i think this is a helpful quote friends we tend to be taken aback by the thought that god could be Could be angry. How could a deity who's perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But the writer goes on but love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. God expresses his wrath because he loves what is good. And therefore he hates what is evil. Because he loves what is good and he loves his creatures and he hates when they destroy one another. Like any good parent whose emotions are right. You love your child even while their wicked behavior raises your ire. Now, now, that's as far as I'll go with that comparison because our contrast with God's wrath is so, so strong. Don't confuse those two in your mind. I am not saying that God is any way like us in the way that we fly off the handle. He is not a person who becomes, you know, sort of emotionally enraged at the drop of a hat. Though some of us are, even our best expressions of righteous indignation come across oftentimes as arrogant. They come across as spiteful or, or as arbitrary and whimsical. But God's wrath isn't like that at all. He's never arrogantly self-righteous. He, he's he's never twisted by whim. He's never given to fits and bouts of injustice or cruelty. The wrath of God is none of those things. But it is his inevitable and predictable and growing and righteous opposition to all that is evil. And his determination to punish it. Look, it's not arbitrary because it it is the divine reaction to only one situation. Evil. It's entirely predictable. And it's a growing thing. The the root word of wrath here means to grow ripe for something. It's God's gradually building, intensifying opposition to sin. Paul says, believe it or not, dear friends, that we are by nature. We are dead in our sins. We are disobedient. And we we are in danger under wrath. But Paul does not leave you there. He wants you to remember that. He wants you to know that about yourself. And then what does he say? He says, but God. Verse 4, but God. You were all that, but God. But what did God do? But God. And then you have to go to verse 5, middle of it, to figure out what he did. But God, what did he do? He made you alive together with Christ. God's saving power brought life to you in jesus like we might say aslan in the lion the witch in the wardrobe storming the fortress of the white witch and encountering the stone statues of the narnian creature she has turned into death stone and he breathes his breath upon them and they burst forth in life and mr tumnus is alive or like prince charming who gives the kiss of love to Snow White and awakens her from a death-like sleep. So God, he says, but God, what did he do? He gave you spiritual resurrection. He made you alive even when you were dead. That's what he says. He did something for you that you could not do for yourself. The one thing, and I've, I've never been in an... I've never worked... In a hospital or ER. I don't know the first thing about medical care and nursing. I barely know how to take care of myself. But I bet you, you will, no one has ever seen or ever will see a body lying still and limp with no pulse and no brain activity on a gurney in a hospital, suddenly jolting themselves with electricity to the chest to jumpstart the heart, to bring themselves back to life. It's not something people can do for themselves. God did it. He made you alive. Do you remember the image in the prophet Ezekiel? If you were to go to Ezekiel 37, it's a short, brief, and startling story of of a vision God gives the prophet Ezekiel. And it's this image of a valley of dry bones of human skeletons, uh, dry and dusty, as, as though an army had been left there and per- having perished in battle. And the bodies have decomposed and the bones have been bleached white under the hot Middle Eastern sun. And then God tells Ezekiel, preach to the bones. And Ezekiel preaches to the bones. And the bones come together. And sinew and tendon and flesh and muscle and skin are put on the bones. And the men stand to their feet a vast army of living men. What an image for a person in that day who had probably seen plenty of bleached bones in the sun. Whereas for most of us, we probably have never even seen a dead body. But what a visual picture. God says, I will bring life in your death. That is what I did for you, dear Christian. I brought you alive in death. And I want to say, you cannot live for God until you get life from God. He needs to make you alive before you can live. Why did God do it, though? That's what he did. Why did he do it? This is the third and final thing. Why? Verse 4 tells you, but God, he says, Why did he do it? He looked down at us and said, you people are so wonderful. I can't help myself. Is that what he said? That's not what he said. Did God look down and say, well, uh, you people over there are better than you people over there. That's why I'll do it for you. Or, Or you people over there are trying so much harder than you people over there. And that's why I'll do it for you. Is that why God did any of this? No, absolutely not. Why did he do it? Look at the language here. Why? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He highlights the the character of God as merciful. He he highlights the choice of God to love. And he highlights grace. Let me highlight those three things for you. It was because God is rich in mercy, which is a way of saying God didn't have a duty to do this. He was under no obligation. A, A mother came to Napoleon, the story is told seeking pardon for her son who had committed some crimes, and Napoleon told her, well, he's done this thing twice and he deserves justice, and justice demands death. And she said, but I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon said. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. That's what mercy is. It's under no obligation. But it is God's nature to be merciful. He delights to show mercy. And so being rich in mercy. And secondly, because of the love with which he loved you. He says, I loved you because I loved you. He loved us in spite of our unloveliness. Not because we had loveliness. We, 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 don't you yearn for somebody to love you like that in spite of your unloveliness? America's previous most famous atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, gone now for some time. She disappeared before she died. She had her diary sold in order to pay the back taxes that she owed. Six times in her diary she wrote, somebody, somewhere, love me. I've often wondered if she perceived the love of those around her as conditioned only upon her good performance, because she lamented in those same journals, I have failed in marriage, failed in motherhood, and failed in, as a politician. In her mind, I wonder if those two things went together. Be good, be successful, and be loved. Fail, and nobody loves you. We have something absolutely better than that, friends. He loves. Why? Because he loves That's vital to understand. You didn't provoke him to love you. And therefore, dear friends, you cannot provoke him to stop loving you. Has he made you alive in Christ? It was because of his love. You didn't provoke him to get that love. Thank the Lord there's not something in you that will now provoke him to abandon that love. Oh no, friends, he loved, so he was rich in mercy, and he loved you, and he chose to love you. And so Paul says he can't help but say it. What's the conclusion? By grace, you are saved. He can't help but say it. He's going to say it a bunch more the rest of the chapter. He can't help but say so by grace, you've been saved. Christ died for you when you were helpless, that's grace. When you were ungodly, when you were dead in sin, disobedient, in danger of wrath, Christ died for you. And God made you alive and brought you to life. So if you are a Christian here, you are in Christ for this one reason. You could do nothing, and God came and saved you. And you have been saved by his grace. That's the message, friends, of the entire Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. There's nothing you do to earn it. Um, You can't begin the Christian life. You can't continue the Christian life. You can't make progress in the Christian life. You can't even love other Christians properly until you have this fundamental understanding of the gospel, friends, that salvation is of the Lord and for the helpless. I have a friend and pastor friend named Ricky Jones. He says, all you have to do, however, to forget that you are a product of God's grace is to wake up in the morning. And you begin to honestly believe that you deserve to be where you are. We have to remind ourselves, friends, we were dead and God made us alive. We didn't expect it. And yet we take credit for it. We're so much better than those other people we say were at church. We're at evening church. We're useless if we forget it, though. If we forget grace. Because anything done in the Christian life is done by faith. And faith is trusting another. And the second you forget grace, you begin to rely on yourself. The second you stop believing you are the product of grace. The second you stop believing that you are a beggar simply a blind beggar telling other beggars where you received bread, the second you stop believing that, your ministry with other people is done. Because nobody can stand the stink of self-righteousness that comes forth when you think you deserve to be here. And you have a right to minister. Now, Jim Boyce, the, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia, tells the story of his predecessor, um, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, he says, long, Morgan says long ago he was walking home one day. Uh, and this is in the days before re- refrigeration, and which isn't that long ago actually, the history of the world. My parents remember those days. You had to go to the store to get milk every day if you wanted milk. And so he sees this little girl coming up out of a, a basement basement uh, Store. She's got a pitcher of milk in her hands, and the girl drops it, and it shatters everywhere. And she starts crying uncontrollably. and And he tries to comfort her in her crying. And she says, "My mama's gonna beat me. That's her only picture. She's going to beat me." He says, "Is okay? I'll, I'll help you." And they start putting it back together, and they almost get done. And then she tries to stick a piece in too hard. It all falls apart again, and she's crying. "It's okay," he says. "It's okay. I'll, I'll fix it. Just sit here and watch." And he puts it all back together except for the handle, and then she tries to put the handle back in, and it all falls apart again. And she's crying harder. My mama's going to beat me. And he, so he picks her up, and he says, your mama will not beat you today. And he carries her to a pitcher store, and he buys her another pitcher, and he walks back to the basement. And he gets it refilled with milk, and he asks her where she lives, and he walks her home carrying the pitcher, and he sets her up on the porch, and he puts the pitcher in her hands, and he says, ringing the doorbell, will your mama beat you today, now? And she says, no. This is a much better picture than the one we had before. That's grace. There's nothing you do to help it. Any effort on your part to make it work better only ruins it. And what God gives you in the end is much better than what you had before. You have nothing to do with it. It's purely about Jesus. And so all we supply, friends, is the need for it. All we supply is something that's broken and destroyed. And all we receive is life and hope, joy and purpose in a kingdom. Do you know that, dear friends? You know why you need to remember Because we're afraid to admit that we're sinners, that we're weak, that we need help. And it's because we've forgotten grace. We think if we admit we need help, then we're worthless. We've forgotten grace, and when we do, we try to fake a beautiful life. We tell people we're fine, our relationships are fine, the marriage is fine, work is fine, life is fine. We start faking it, friends. Because we're afraid that if people saw the truth, they would want nothing to do with us. And it's because we forget that we're saved by grace. And we judge people who aren't like us. We get together in groups of four and five and we stand around and we say, you know, nobody's really like us. Those people over there have different politics than us. They have different religious ideas than us. They have different economic views than us. They like different football teams than us. But we're right and they're wrong. And we're not really all that interested in talking to them. No wonder nobody wants to be close to us. We forget grace. And so we separate ourselves from other people by being judgmental against them. And it's because we've forgotten 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have, says Paul, that you have not been given? And if you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it why do you act like you earned it salvation is of the lord he gave you life let's pray our father in heaven i pray you'd forgive us for all our proud thoughts we know that you oppose the proud but are gracious to the humble i pray that you would humble us under your mighty hand teach us to know the grace of christ for we ask it in his name amen